Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh, that was weird. I just sat down and my back cracked. It was rather enjoyable, actually. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do this thing. I am not ready, oh. and I will give you a heads up. Our little Billy is not feeling well today, so if I just launch out of my chair and disappear for a moment or two, it's because Billy's hacking and I, I, it's hurting my heart. Yeah, and because of his hacking, he can't be in here while we're recording. It's mostly hard from my, my tiny little heart. We'll give him treats when we're done. Yeah. He'll love it. You may recall, um, during a Fresh Foot Fiesta, which dropped <laughs> recently, we discussed a man who made tacos for his friends out of his leg meat, and uh, we got some really interesting emails uh, right after that. And, and also puns. Oh my gosh, so many amazing puns. What, what was... Uh, uh, bon Appetit. Yeah, Cafadillas. Torhelias. Yeah, that was my favorite, I, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it was quite delightful. Anyway, um, so one of the messages that we received was from Tim, and Tim says, So I had two ribs removed. If I had a penny for every Marilyn Manson joke I've heard <laughs> since, I'd have enough to buy about 212 packs of tacos. He says that he had thoracic outlet syndrome, and removing the rib was a way to alleviate those symptoms. First time it happened, I had a three-inch-long blood clot in my subclavian artery. My whole right arm turned blue. Well, I ended up having my first rib resection. Is that how that word said? Sounds right to me. Okay. I basically begged the doctors to let me keep it. They said, no, it was biohazard. See, I told you. Yeah. Um, I asked them like a hundred times. So then the same issue shows up on my left side. So I know the drill. Go have another rib removed. I didn't even ask them to keep it. I was so disappointed the first time. Well, my wonderful surgeon flat out asked me if I wanted to keep it. I was like a deer in the headlights looking at her in disbelief. <laughs> she then told me she fought the hospital to allow patients to let them take their body parts with them. Well done. I love it. So yeah, Tim has his rib. What's he do with it? 
He wrote, boiling my rib sections to remove the marrow in the kitchen pots cooked the gills on pain meds shortly after my surgery was a very interesting conversation I had with my lady. <laughs> glorious, glorious. Yeah, uh-huh. I didn't once think about making jello from my marrow. Seems like a wasted opportunity now, though. He didn't even drink the broth? Guess not. So wasteful. Thanks for the email, Tim. Timmy? Timothy? Tim? What's his name? Tim. Tim. I want to call him Timmy. Like Timmy Changas. I didn't think of that. That was that was another comment that somebody made on the social media. There are some who call me Tim. Tim. So it is your turn to begin this episode. It is? It is indeed. Oh my. I'm so excited. Okay. I didn't know. All right. So I sent myself an email uh, with my information in it because I had to do so much of this uh, on the road. And so here we go. So I've got my email up, and your HelloFresh meals are on the way. <laughs> That's the wrong email, sweetheart. Yeah, I'm just really excited about the uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> the burrito bowls. Um, okay, what was I saying? Yes, it's June 1941. You know I'm going with this. Adolf Hitler has launched Operation Barbarossa, his massive invasion of the Soviet Union. And by the fall, the Germans were pressing on Moscow, Leningrad was under siege, and the Red Army was struggling. The Soviets were desperate. Along comes Marina Raskova, known as the Soviet Amelia Earhart, which I don't know why she can't just be Marina Raskova. (laughs) Why does someone always have to be the something-something? Yeah. Just let them be their own thems. They have to be the Russian version of something American. Right? Yeah. It's gross, Uh, right? I guess. I'm sorry. Whatever. Anyway, Marina Riskova's rad, and she is a trained singer and musician, and she had been the Soviet Air Force's first woman navigator and had quietly worked for the NKVD, which is the Soviet Secret Police. Okay. There's a lot of destruction going on. They're in the middle of a war. And she has been getting a lot of letters from women all across the Soviet Union wanting to join in on the World War II effort. Now, of course, they're allowed into outlying positions. They can support the men, the boys at arms. They can cook and type for them. Right. Um, But they wanted more real roles in the fighting. Why they've been allowed to participate in the supporting roles. They wanted to be gunners and pilots. They wanted to fly on their own. Many of them had lost people. Many of them had lost homes. And they wanted to be a part of this this fight. So according to History.com, seeing an opportunity, Raskova petitioned Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin to let her form an all-female fighting squadron. What? Ultimately... The only air squad that belonged exclusively to the Dominion of Women was the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, the Night Witches. Wow, that's awesome. So she personally went to Stalin and pitched this idea? That's the word. That's incredible. That's pretty ballsy. Well, like I said, the the Soviet Union was desperate at this point, and there were so many women who wanted to help in whatever way they could. So where every single individual in this group, from the pilots to the commander to the mechanics, they were female. 
Raskova quickly started to fill out her teams. Uh, from more than 2,000 applicants, she selected around 400 women for each of the three units. Most were students ranging in age from 17 to 26. Those selected were moved to Engels, which is a small town north of Stalingrad, uh, to begin training at the Engels School of Aviation. So Steve Prowse, author of the screenplay The Night Witches, which is a nonfiction account of the little-known female squadron, uh, spoke a lot uh, about this amazing group of ladies. And according to him, they underwent a highly compressed education. Uh, They were expected to learn in just a few months what it took soldiers years to grasp. And each recruit had to train and perform as pilots, navigators, maintenance people, and ground crew. They all had to know how to do all of it. And they needed to sew their own uniforms. No. No? No. They were given uniforms. Okay, good. They didn't fit them, but they were given uniforms. They were also given very outdated equipment. Their planes were actually crop dusters. What? They were never intended for combat. They were called the Polikarpov Po-2, which is a two-seated open cockpit biplane made out of plywood with canvas pulled over it. Holy shit. That, that was antiquated even in 1941. It offered zero protection from the elements. And at night, the pilots were flying. It was sub-zero temperatures. That's like World War I technology. Maybe. It is. Yeah. The Red Baron flew an open cockpit it's biplane. It's nuts. I mean, you think about how cold it is on the ground at sub-zero temperatures, let alone in the air, flying at these speeds. Though, to be fair, they weren't flying very fast. Prowse said that the military, which was unprepared for lady pilots, offered them very meager resources, and the uniforms that they got were male soldier uniforms. So they had to make them work, and the oversized boots that they were provided, uh, he said that many of them tore up their bedding and stuffed their boots so that they would fit, and it it also provided a little warmth, uh, you know, for those sub-zero temperatures. I imagine. The upside to these tiny little planes was their maximum speed was slower than the stall speed of Nazi planes, which meant that these little tiny wooden planes could maneuver faster than the enemy, making them very hard to target. They could also take off and land in places that other planes couldn't. Like fields and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're crop dusters. Exactly. Um, The downside, though, when coming under enemy fire the pilots had to duck by you know sending their planes into dives because none of them had any sort of self-defense no no bulletproof canvas no in those days no for sure and if they were hit with like a pyrotechnic charge they would just burst into flames god so due to the plane's limited weight capacity and the military's limited funds, the pilots also lacked some of the other luxury items that their male counterparts enjoyed. Things like parachutes. Oh, yeah. Well, parachutes aren't very slimming, sweetie. Why are you being weird about this? I'm pointing out social injustice through satire. Okay, well, stop it. That's weirding me out. Like I've never weirded you out before. <laughs> Um, They didn't have radar. They weren't allowed to carry guns or radios. Instead, they were given tools like rulers. And cheese graters for when they made pasta 
for the rest of the troops. What is happening? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll shut up. Go ahead. Pointing out social injustice through satire. They were issued stopwatches, flashlights, pencils, maps, and compasses. Well, they got a compass. Find their way back if they didn't burn to death after they've been shot out of the sky. No, it was one of the compasses that makes a nice circle. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> That's not true. Anyway. Um, okay. So, the Polikarpovs could only carry two bombs at a time. And so they carried them one under each wing. And in order to make meaningful dents in the German front lines, the regiment sent out up to 40 two-person crews a night. And each crew would execute between 8 and 18 missions a night, flying back to rearm between runs. That's amazing to me. You're talking about, as you mentioned, an antiquated biplane that's mm -hmm. made out of sticks and yep. canvas and yes. i had read somewhere where a lot of these older biplanes to waterproof them they rubbed the canvas with paraffin wax which sure. made it incredibly flammable and great for your hands what are you doing <laughs> it's not so fun now is it but then you know you you strap a couple of incendiary devices to it mm -hmm. it just seems like a bad idea to me i mean that is essentially a flying wick not a witch a wick though also a witch so the weight of the bombs forced them to fly at lower altitudes, which made them much easier to target, which is why they only flew night missions. The Germans nicknamed them the Nachtthexen, or night witches, because of the whooshing noise that their wooden planes made. Um, it resembled that of a sweeping broom. Wow, so, so the Germans were the one that gave them that cool name. Yeah. Okay. One considerable advantage was that because of the plane's primitive construction, it was very difficult to spot the night witches on radar. And when a pilot approached their target, the pilot would shut off their engine and glide to their impending destination. Ooh. So that would, that's all you had was that whooshing sound. I love these ladies. In fact, their gliding speed was so slow that they traveled at half the speed of a parachutist. And on the ground, the Germans had little warning. Um, they were reportedly so afraid of the night witches that they wouldn't light cigarettes after dark for fear that the night witches would spot them. <laughs> the planes, each with a pilot up front and a navigator in the back, traveled in packs. And the first planes would go in as bait, attracting the German spotlights, which would then provide illumination that the, the follow-up teams could use. Smart. The planes, which rarely had any ammunition to defend themselves would release a flare to light up the intended target, and then the last plane would idle its engines, glide into the bombing area, and that was the stealth mode that created that signature witch broom sound. How pissed off would you have been if you were a German soldier and you were told you couldn't have a cigarette, and then they throw those spotlights on? Right. You know, I'd be like, I'm going to light up right now. <laughs> Obviously. The women faced skepticism from some of the male military personnel who believed that they added no value to the combat effort. Uh, Raskova did her best to prepare her women for these attitudes, but of course they, they faced mocking, they faced sexual harassment. Some men said they didn't like, quote, little girls going to the front line. Okay. They probably didn't like little girls being more successful on the front line than they are. Yeah. You know? That sometimes happens. Ooh, she's got more kills than I have. The Germans, though, recognized the night the skills the night witches had yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, they were on the receiving end. 
And it was when the 588th Regiment heard of their German nickname, uh, they adopted it as a badge of pride. Mm. In fact, the Germans were so in awe of the considerable skill of the night witches that they spread rumors that the Soviet government had been enhancing the eyesight of women with experimental medicine to give them a sort of feline night vision. (laughs) So they were actually producing propaganda for the Russians themselves. Exactly. That's not smart. No. German military responded by automatically issuing a prestigious Iron Cross medal to any German who was able to shoot down one of the night witches. Hmm. The regiment flew harassment bombing and precision bombing missions against the German military from 1942 until the end of the war. They flew over 23,000 sorties. It was the most highly decorated female unit in the Soviet Air Force, with many pilots having flown over 800 missions by the end of the war, and 23 having been awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union title. Despite this, despite being the most highly decorated unit in the Soviet Air Force during the war, the Night Witches Regiment was disbanded six months after the end of World War II, and when it came time for the big Victory Day parade in Moscow, they were not included. Really? Well, it was decided that their planes were too slow, so they would hold up the parade. I see. Yeah. All right. It may have also had to do with other things, but this was the 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 official ruling. Their it's, planes are too slow. Yeah, the planes are too slow for a parade, mm-hmm. but you can fly to the front yeah. and bomb the Germans Yeah, in a fire trap. In a fire trap, exactly. Yeah. Um, so obviously a lot of uh, incredible things to overcome, uh, but the the result, I think, says it all. Uh, There were 12 commandments the night witches followed. And the first of that was, be proud, you are a woman. Hmm. The end. I love these ladies. Pretty rad, right? And there's a list. um, I will post it. Uh, There's a list of the the leaders of the night witches. Most of their names I can't pronounce. So I wasn't going to do that. Because they're Russian. Um, But pretty amazing chicas for, for sure. And now. The Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. Today, colorful slang sayings from the Old West. Number five. Pistols were often referred to as barkin' irons. That makes sense. I love it. I like it. Number four. Higgledy-piggledy. Also known as a state of confusion. Everything's all higgledy-piggledy. Number three. Paper money was often referred to as Lincoln skins. Number two, you know this one. You love this one. It's a catty wampus. <laughs> That's a fight, right? It's when things are askew or awry. Oh, okay. What's all this catty wampus? And number one, a four flusher. That's a liar or a cheater or a swindler. But where I come from, a four flusher has an entirely different meaning. That requires a tile bar. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Box of Oddity. Hang on, we just got a text. Not sure we made Okay, that can wait. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, again, if you go to the uh, App Store, download Himalaya and subscribe to the Box of Oddities. Uh, Once we get to 2,000 new subscribers, we're going to release the uh, video of our live show at uh, Zany's in Nashville. And somebody said, it's like you're holding it hostage. (laughs) I don't know. I wanted to do something fun with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. we're getting pretty close to 2,000. So um, I'm super jazzed about it. And I can't wait to... Uh, do the thing. So do the thing. I'm sure that we'll probably release that uh, probably in the next few days by the way things are going. Yeah, for sure. All right. So just after noon on January 15th, 1919, with the sun high in the sky, temperatures topping 40 degrees on the north end of Boston, an explosion so great erupted that it shook the entire city. And it was even felt by sailors who were out at sea. The explosion tore the busiest commercial site in all of Boston to pieces. Uh, the devastation was sudden and deadly and delicious. I'm talking about the great Boston molasses disaster of 1919. You look pleased. 
So I dug through the Boston Globe archives. Uh, also, I got some information from WBUR. And Stephen Pulio wrote a book about it called Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. So Dark Tide. It sounds so ominous, doesn't it? It, it really does. It was. So let's go back a couple of years. In 1915, a company called the Purity Distilling Company built a holding tank. It was about 50 feet tall. It was located on Commercial Street, and they and they chose that location because it was right next to the harbor. Molasses arrived on ships from you know the Caribbean, and then there were railroad tracks nearby where they could uh, shuttle it out to a manufacturing plant in in Cambridge. Now, what they were doing was they were distilling molasses into alcohol. Okay, and the alcohol was being used for the war effort in World War One. But, you know, they were in a hurry to build this tank. It was in an area that was pretty densely populated with poor Italian immigrants who were powerless to, um, you know, say, hey, don't jam that big tank in the middle of our neighborhood. Right. Uh, the company was, of course, profit driven, which is not a bad thing. But when you put people's lives at risk, then it's a bad thing. Well, Jay, how is a giant vat of molasses putting people's lives at risk? Well, the people in charge, they decided not to test the tank when they when they put it in. Sure. Well, they were only going to fill it to the brim with thick, viscous fluid. No big deal. Sugary goodness. So if they had done the tests, though, uh, experts now think that they would have obviously detected flaws in the construction and you know it would it, this all could have been avoided well some signs of trouble uh showed up almost immediately uh it, it started the tank started leaking molasses oh, no. dark uh brown streaks of molasses would run down the sides of the tank did children run to the tank with open bowls they actually did oh yes <laughs> It's like tapping the tank. What, what they did was that they, the kids would find sticks and they would make makeshift lollipops out of it. They would scrape oh. the molasses off the outside of the tank. And the leaks were so bad at points that uh, adults were coming with pails. Oh, my goodness. And just collecting the molasses off the side. Well, they're just helping out. Otherwise, it would just run down the side. You don't want that. It's messy. No. So the neighborhood people were scraping the molasses off the side of the tank. You think that that would be a warning sign to the people in charge of that? Their response was, you know, uh, what we'll do to fix this is we'll paint the tank brown. So you won't notice. Yeah, so you can't see it. Continually in my life, I see politicians painting the tank brown. Mm -hmm. People would walk by the tank and they would hear this ominous groaning sound coming from from the tank shortly before it erupted. Sure. A researcher named Ronald Mayville, who has always been fascinated with this story, and he has... Uh, and rightly, rightfully so. Yeah. He has uh, spent a great deal of time researching it. He says it's a phenomenon of science and engineering. Quote, no one knows exactly why the tank failed, but one thing is very clear. It was underdesigned. Whoever did the design failed to provide the adequate thickness of steel. On top of that, it looks like the method that they used to make the rivet holes, the way that they uh, put the tank together in those days, mm -hmm. they used to rivet them as opposed to welding, was substandard. And that may have created small cracks in the rivet holes. Mm. 
And on top of that, the steel that they used, although it was state-of-the-art of the day, we know today that it could be relatively brittle under certain circumstances. End quote. So maybe this tank would have been okay for, let's say, lemonade or... And don't fill it to the, to the brim. U.S. Industrial Alcohol, they were the company that owned the tank, had rushed to build it, employing an overseer who uh, was not really an expert in construction and engineering, but in finance. And uh, yeah, uh-huh. In fact, at one point when the holes where they drilled through to you know put the rivets in started to crack, pieces started falling off mm-hmm. of the little holes. So the rivets were really not holding anything in place. And, and one of the uh, night watchmen found a piece of the uh, rivet that had fallen off and he took it to his supervisor and his supervisor said, quote, what do you want me to do about it? The tank stands. Well, it did for two more days. Right. Oh, no. They topped the tank off with fresh molasses from Puerto Rico. And it was uh, only a handful of times that, that the tank had been full to capacity. Okay. Puerto Rico, a lovely place, part of the United States. So on that faithful day, the dock workers, it was around noon. They were just sitting down to have their lunch. Now, by dock workers, do you mean sex workers? No, well, maybe. I'm not sure. Just people who were working <laughs> near the tank okay. area. Because it's always what I think. I hear dock workers. <laughs> yeah. I think sex workers. But I guess maybe, maybe probably not that many work on docks anymore. I don't know. So they're sitting down to lunch when the tank exploded. So this is the part that, that blows my mind. The massive explosion sent a wave of molasses 15 feet high and 165 feet wide, racing. Yeah, I know, molasses. Racing through Boston's north end at 35 miles an hour. Okay. 15 feet high, 165 some odd feet wide, and 35 miles per hour through the dock area on the north end of Boston. That's insane. The only thing, like... In my brain, the only thing I can think that would move that way is lava. And except lava's, you know, like, obviously very, very hot. And molasses, I guess, I mean, wouldn't have been hot. Were they? Was it hot? It was warmer than normal okay. be- because of them just topping off the tank. When, the, when they would pump molasses in, they would warm it up so it would flow better. Oh. And so that warmed up the tank, uh, the existing molasses there. And then, of course, the explosion caused, yeah, made it even warmer. The flow leveled a firehouse. Oh, my gosh. It crushed the support beams of the elevated train. 21 people died. Dozens more were badly injured. <gasps> Uh, people who had no idea, well, they were just going about their business. Men, women, children, they were smothered by a tsunami of viscous uh, brown syrup. When the bodies were finally recovered, the, uh, the uh, medical examiner of Suffolk County said that they looked, quote, as though covered in heavy oil skins, eyes, ears, mouths, noses filled. Oh, gosh, that's terrifying. It's it's such a bizarre thing, and it's hard not to feel more than one thing about it, because obviously that's a terrifying way to die. Oh, my God. And it's heartbreaking. And it's also just so fascinating, because I've never thought 
Uh, I mean, I've never had to think about a tsunami of molasses. Traveling at the rate of about 50 feet a second. 50 feet a second. The rising tide of molasses leveled buildings. It buckled steel girders. It overwhelmed pretty much everything and everyone in its wake, including Pascal Ian Tosca. He was 10 years old. Hmm. And he was struck and killed by a train car that was swept off the tracks by this molasses tsunami. Oh, my goodness. People drowned. They were killed by debris. Others horribly injured. There were fractured skulls and broken backs. 25 horses perished. But it gets even more horrific. As I had mentioned a minute ago, the molasses that they topped the tank off was warm. Mm -hmm. It was also a relatively warm day you know it's like 40 degrees in january in boston sure you know and if it's 40 in boston in january you're doing okay and this of course called caused the molasses to be more fluid and that contributed to it roaring through the streets at 35 miles per hour after the explosion right but this is boston in january oh so it cooled down quickly that night temperatures plunged to well below freezing trapping many victims in molasses like the amber scenes from the fringe oh my the fringe that was a good show the fringe trapping the many fringe was one of my favorites trapping many victims in the molasses like the amber scenes from fringe or as some call it the fringe in 2016 Students uh, were taking an introduction to fluid dynamics class at Harvard, and they studied the effects of uh, the weather that particular day. Mm -hmm. And they concluded that the 13,000 tons of molasses spread rapidly because it was, you know, warm, uh, but then stiffened quickly in the cold air, impeding rescuers and costing lives. The dead became entombed. In the hardened sugar, forcing frantic workers, they had to use pickaxes and saws to clear the wreckage and retrieve the bodies. Um, the effort was, uh, was pretty painstaking. A guy named uh, Flaminio Gallerini, his body was disco- wasn't discovered until 11 days after the spill. Whoa. They had to chip him out of the hardened um, molasses. In the body of Cesar Nicolo, who was a wagon driver... They didn't find him for four months. Oh, my goodness. He was um, buried in, mol- in molasses underneath Commercial Wharf. Back in 1981, a guy named Harry Howe, who was an eyewitness to this, um, did an interview. He was on a, uh, on a boat docked in the harbor, and he witnessed the incident firsthand as he said, quote, we saw this big cloud of brown dust and dirt and a, uh, and a slight noise. There was an arm sticking out from underneath the wheel of a truck. So two of us got a hold of his arm and pulled, and unfortunately, we pulled his arm right off. What? How and other sailors were some of the first people on the scene. Whoa. To rescue these, uh, these poor people. More than 100 lawsuits were filed. Yeah. <laughs> against the state in state's industrial alcohol company, the owner of Purity Distilling. Uh, lawyers tried to, uh, they tried to blame the local Italian population, saying that it what? was anarchists that had blew, blown the tank up, and uh, it was their fault. They were blaming, you know, the people who were the victims That's of it. That's vile. Yep, but uh, the court said, no, no. 
Mm-hmm. They weren't radicals that bombed the tank. Um, the accident, he ruled, was the result of shoddy design and construction, the same type of brittle steel that had been used in the Titanic. Oh. Yep. They were ordered to uh, to pay about $630,000 in settlements. I don't know what that would be today, but that's pretty pretty significant, I guess. Local politicians in Boston, of course, were outraged. Yeah, exclamation point. Yeah, for a little while. But but that went away pretty quickly. Sure. And, and the speculation is because mostly the people killed were Italian immigrants and they didn't have much political power. Right. Today, their story, largely forgotten. Aside from a plaque in the spot where the tank once stood, laws have been changed, of course, because of that, that make things safer. But interestingly, to this day, more than 100 years later, when the weather conditions are just right, you can still smell molasses on Boston's north end. That's not true. It is true. Yes, it is true. And that's the great Boston molasses disaster of 1919. Whoa. Yeah. That was remarkable. It, to me, the most horrifying part of that is, you know, you've you've been hit by debris. Your back's broken, let's say. Mm-hmm. You're lying in this molasses. You're trying to keep your head above the, the, the level of it so you can breathe. And then the temperature drops and you're just a molasses sickle. They yeah. have to jackhammer your body out the next day. Yeah, that's rough. Anyway, go Sox. Yeah, what year was that? 18, uh, 19, 18? Nin- it was 1919. 1919. So it was one year after the Red Sox won their last World Series. I was until, gonna say until 2004. Maybe it was a molasses curse and not a babe curse. <laughs> not a curse of the Bambino, but the curse of the Triacle. Correct. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Is it? Yeah. Is it? It is. Thank you to everyone who sent us stuff about spaghetti. I know how to measure spaghetti now. <laughs> yeah, they actually sent you um, various pasta measuring devices <laughs> because you said you suck at measuring spaghetti. Honestly, there are some really great tips, though. Uh, very much appreciated. You people make my life better. The Vox of Oddities will land on your listening device sometime, well, I would say around midnight Wednesday night. At least that's the next one. Twice a week, The Vox of Oddities. We'll see you then. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that The Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.